0: That's a pen method.
1: Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 22. I can't believe how we're piling up these episodes one after another. I thank you for continuing to listen. This is going to be a good one because I have with me today, as promised, Fellow wrestling author, Jonathan Snowden. You're going to enjoy this conversation. I'll tell you why in a few minutes, what it's all going to be about. Before we get to this great convo, a couple things I want to talk about. One, of course, as we like to do here on Shut Up and Wrestle, or not like to do, but as I feel it's important to do, uh, being an old school wrestling podcast. We talk about the people we've lost. And in recent weeks, we have actually lost not one but two beloved former WWE uh, referees and producer road agents, uh, one of them being Dave Hebner, the twin brother of Earl Hebner. Of course, a lot of people remember him best from the the uh, uh, twin referee angle, right? Of course, from the main event in 1988, where Dave played the good referee and Earl played the the evil. Twin referee that cost Hogan the belt and and wound up giving it to Andre the Giant. Um, A lot of people may recall that before Earl kind of had his illustrious uh, refereeing career in WWE, that it was Dave for those first couple of years uh, from about 85 to 87 or 88. Uh, It was Dave who was the 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 regular and almost kind of chief WWF referee on television. And then he retired from that to be a backstage road agent and producer. I remember him well from my time working there. He was he was (laughs) beloved of most of the wrestlers uh, in those days. And then, of course, also Tim White, who uh, Tim is uh, an interesting figure because he started as uh, the handler of Andre the Giant. Uh, that was a role that was managed by Arnold Skoland for years in the WWF. And then when Arnie kind of stepped away in 1985, it became Tim White's responsibility. After Andre passed in the early 90s, um, it, it, Tim became a full-time referee. He had only been part-time before that. refereed many uh, famous and memorable WWF and WWE encounters, probably chief among them being the 1998 king of the ring hell in a cell between mick foley and um the undertaker of course timmy also had that famous bar that he ran in boston that a lot of the wrestlers would go to when they were in town and it was even used a few times on television for angles and vignettes and things so uh we bid a bitter farewell to the beloved dave hebner and tim white Also on the historical front, I want to talk about the upcoming issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated because this is a story that was very special to me and it's gotten a little bit of notice and it hasn't even come out yet. This is for the October issue, which will be available in July uh, in print and digital uh, even before that. And it's a story I wrote about Cody Rhodes and his um, quest to capture the WWE World Championship tying it back to his father, Dusty Rhodes, uh, attempting to win it from superstar Billy Graham back in 1977, which Cody's talked about on TV. And I kind of use that as the basis of a feature story in Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Last week, Cody himself tweeted about the story online and uh, as well as Cody's sister Teal and uh, it's been getting some traction and some recognition and I'm very proud of it And, and so I'm kind of boasting about it a little bit here but you may have seen that online even if you didn't you can check out the story in the next issue of PWI the October issue available very soon in July uh, last thing I want to say before we get to the conversation, just my weekly reminder for those in the Connecticut area or even in the tri-state area, if you like to travel, I'm going to be at the Milford Barnes & Noble in Milford, Connecticut, Friday, July 8th from 5 to 7. I'm going to be talking about and signing copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic my biography of the original Sheik, Ed Farhat. So if you'd like to connect and talk about the book and maybe get yourself a signed copy, come to the Milford Barnes & Noble the evening of July 8th. Um, Okay, so with all that out of the way, I'd like to get to this fascinating conversation, which I greatly enjoyed doing with a fellow wrestling writer, John Snowden. You're going to love this because we get into sort of the inside baseball of what it's like to write these wrestling biographies i talk a little bit about the chic book uh john talks about some of his books including his upcoming uh, biography of the american dream dusty roads that he's just starting to work on now and the thought process behind that putting it together and we also talk about of course our mutual love of southeastern wrestling georgia championship mid-atlantic wrestling the stuff that he grew up on And uh, so there's a lot to get to here. It's a great conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's now my pleasure to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle um, a fellow wrestling author, combat sports author, uh, someone who's very respected in the field and very accomplished in the field. Um, You probably know him from... Specifically, two books that I want to mention. One is the 2012 book Shooters: The Toughest Men in Professional Wrestling, and more recently, 2020, the biography of Ken Shamrock, which is called Shamrock: The World's Most Dangerous Man. He's also an expert in mixed martial arts. He was the author of the total of Total MMA in 2008, and the co-author of the MMA Encyclopedia in 2010. He is a master of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> he is a he is a, a former radio dj and tv producer who currently works for the department of defense of all things see we have very well respected people here on the podcast i'm talking about mr jonathan snowden thank you john for coming on shut up and wrestle
0: <laughs> thanks for having me i sound super impressive in that introduction anybody who's met me in real life is really laughing hard because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm fairly lame <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you see i got that i i stole this gimmick for people that haven't figured out yet by now but i stole the whole gimmick from the gilbert gottfried amazing colossal podcast which was which was before his untimely passing one of my favorite podcasts where they do this very elaborate and highly detailed much more detailed than this introduction for all the guests who come on and they make everybody sound like They are the greatest human being who has ever been born. So I'm I'm trying to uh, copy that. So that's what that is all about.
0: (laughs) I feel like a million bucks. So it definitely works.
1: (laughs) Good, good. It's great to talk to you. I have to say, I mean, we were talking before that, before we started recording about, you know, uh, for people that saw it, I know you wrote um, a a very, um, as I described it, humbling review, a a very positive review of my book, Blood and Fire, the Sheik biography. And uh, just, you know, I've been an admirer of your work. I loved shooters. And in fact, when I first got to know you on social media, I hadn't yet made the connection that that was you. But then I I figured it out later on. Uh, I just thought it was a great concept for a book. And it's just great to have you here to talk about all this stuff.
0: Yeah. So it's so much fun to, you know, there's not a lot of us who do what what you and I do. And and so it's very interesting to, to make your acquaintance because um, I mean, what is there like three people in the world who do (laughs) wrestling biographies, you know, (laughs) like,
1: well, because you know what it is. And I think we've talked about this. The difference is, I mean, sure. There's a billion wrestling biographies out there, but they're almost all um, autobiographies, you know, with or without ghost writers and, Though, that's a very different kind of a book from an independent biography. And I think sometimes that gets overlooked, like a lot of those books. And you know what? Some of them are some of them are very good. But a lot of those books are, you know, it's it's a PR piece. It it's putting over it's somebody who's putting themselves over and, and trying to kind of maybe make a little money off their own name. Nothing wrong with that. But it's a very different kind of thing from writing a yeah. researched kind of impartial journalistic wrestling biography you know like you were writing a biography of any historical figure and those books are rare
0: yeah to me to me like the biggest distinction is is exactly what you're talking about here so it's like i i think those wrestling autobiographies are a lot of fun they're they're kind of like if somebody wrote down a shoot interview uh, you know, it's, it's very similar in concept, but they're not really necessarily generally rigorously researched. So it's like um, and that's OK to me sometimes with wrestling, because wrestling is all about lore. Right. And then and the story um, does it matter if it's true. Not always. But, you know, the kind of book that I want to do and the kind of book that I was so impressed that you did is, is not really like that. You know, you're you're trying to tell the actual story of, of the sheik and not just the legend. And uh, it was just, it was so impressive to me, the, the hurdles you had to overcome to, to do that. So um, I was kind of in awe of your book and it's uh, I I was uh, I'd like to know like how, how did you do it and what why did you continue to do it like that's the main thing to me is like you know when the when the family's like hey we're not interested and obviously he was never interested and it's just like that. it was difficult like the level of difficulty that you undertook was extremely high like why why not quit and do something else you know something <laughs> easier
1: I guess it's because I was operating under the assumption that they weren't going to participate you know what i mean like so so I, I, I didn't have my hopes way, way up. And what so so I started it even before I had gotten any kind of response from them. And, and when I say them, I really mean, you know, Eddie Jr., the chic son who's since passed. But he was kind of the he was kind of the spokesperson, you know. But I, I, I sort of was I had this attitude in the back of my head, like if they do agree, then great. But if they don't, you know, I'm just I'm just you know, plowing along through this. And I have to say, like, now that I look back on it, I kind of prefer it the way it was because I didn't have, you know, I had editorial control. I could tell the kind of story I wanted to tell. Um, I wasn't able to get like the baby pictures that I was hoping for. That would have been amazing, but you know, it's a trade-off and I I think it worked out for the best, honestly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the product was, was fantastic, but it's just like you know, of he's he's probably like the only major wrestler that didn't do like some kind of shirt shoot interview. So it's like, I mean, really, you were just you were starting from scratch in a yeah. very and like legitimately from scratch, and it's just uh, really impressive how you how you tied it all together. And I I like what you did because uh, you know I tried to do some of this in my my Shamrock book where you know, like, yes, it's the story of the Sheik. And yes, mine was the story of Ken Shamrock. But at the same time, it, mine is also like the story of the formation of mixed martial arts as a sport. You know, I'm, I'm telling a broader story through, through Ken. And I felt like you did the same thing with the Sheik, where like, you're telling the story of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s pro wrestling. The Sheik is your vessel for that. But in a lot of ways, your book is about uh, something much bigger than just the Sheik.
1: Yeah. And, and I think it kind of had to be that way because a lot of that honestly was me kind of trying to overcompensate for the fact that there were certain things I was never going to be able to penetrate, you know, like, like a lot of it. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this myself and I I don't mean to be, you know, self-deprecating in a phony kind of way, but I mean, a lot of it is smoke and mirrors where I'm thinking like, Oh my God, I know very little about this particular aspect of this man's life. I I don't know what was going on in his mind at this moment. So instead I'm going to give lots and lots and lots of context around what was happening and kind of dance around it and the, entire, you know, what was going on in the business and what was happening in the culture and everything as a way of uh, kind of, you know, lifting up the narrative. So it doesn't just become like, so skeletal, you know what I mean?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and as an author, like I don't know about every reader, but as an author, like, you know, I could kind of tell where you where you had some information and where you didn't. And so to me, I, I was actually more impressed in areas where you you hadn't been able to, to uh, secure an interview to to support the that time period, you know, where where you really were just having to kind of figure out what you were going to say about maybe like a whole five-year period, you know, you're mm. just like, what am I going to do here? Um, <laughs> I, I was impressed with how you, how you, how you uh, jump those hurdles. Like it, it, it's just masterful. And for me, you know, I, you. I, I was like going to, I, I took a lot from your book that, that uh, hopefully I'll bring to, to future projects because, you know, uh, it's easy to, to, to run into these, these problems where it's like, you're writing about a historical figure and you and you're like you say you 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 don't necessarily know what's in in their head or the the people around them especially you know when when the person has passed away and like we'll never know and so um it's easy to say well i'm just not going to write about that person or i'm just going to skip that section of their life or kind of just gloss over it uh, that that would be the easy path uh you didn't take that path and so um you know uh now maybe i'll have courage to, to to try some things i wouldn't have tried in before you know
1: well i i mean i i know you're working on something now i didn't know how public you were about it if you wanted to meet if it's okay for me to mention the the subject yeah yeah were.
0: i mean we can talk about it it's not like officially announced but um i think people know i'm doing it so
1: <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm talking about the dusty roads biography
0: yeah so it's very exciting and then and so it's a, a similar kind of thing and it, similar but different that's why yours is they i think is, is much harder because obviously um dusty is a figure that that talked about himself a lot
1: <laughs> yes he he was a big fan of himself from what yeah, I so it's
0: kind of different than the chic where like everything was shrouded in, in mystery like dusty Rhodes is a guy like any play, any room that he walked into he wanted everyone to, to see him and he, he was going to tell you all about himself and so um in some ways, my problem uh, is a little bit the opposite in that um, I have to kind of ignore a lot of the stuff that Dusty said, if I'm going to tell <laughs> his true story, because a, a lot of it, frankly, is not true. So um, it's a different challenge than yours, but um, in some ways it, it's similar, especially when you go back to the period of time that I'm looking at now, which is, you know, when people think of Dusty Roads. Typically, they're thinking of the four horsemen, late '80s, uh, you know, mid to late '80s era. Dusty Roads, um, that's the one that's been preserved on videotape when the the VCR was invented, and uh, yes, so we've got all that stuff. Um, of course, as you know, Dusty Roads was that. That's not prime Dusty Roads. That's no end, end right. of career Dusty Roads. You know, we've got a, a decade. Uh, almost the entire decade of the 70s where you could argue that, that Dusty was the biggest Dusty and Andre the Giant are arguably the biggest wrestling stars of the entire 1970s and you know so there's a lot to cover you know and even going back into the late 60s with Dusty so some of that's a little bit tougher because like if you want to know about what Dusty was up to in the 1980s you have like 15 different versions of every story from his enemies and from his friends and from him um, from dave Meltzer and wade keller like there's a lot of conversation about it if you want to know what was happening you know 1968 in amarillo texas um there's not a lot of people left to talk about that you know so it's a. Uh, I, I do i am running into some uh brian solomon uh challenges with this <laughs> one.
1: well the other thing to me that's a big difference and The reason, I mean, for someone like Dusty, because so much, like you said, of his career has been so thoroughly chronicled and he was involved in the business at the highest level. You know, he was a booker and he was behind the scenes in one of the hottest companies in the country and and all that kind of thing. It's like the surrounding context around him is much more well chronicled and like heavily trodden ground than Say the inner workings of Detroit big time wrestling, which has been written about far far less. So I right. feel like the con—you don't have to worry as much about the context, and you could just jump right in to the subject himself. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true of the the '80s section, but yes. I, I think that I think there is probably a whole a whole lot about Dusty Rhodes that it will be new to even most people who kind of fancy themselves hardcore fans, because, you know, I didn't necessarily know it. Like you kind of know the, the broad strokes of it, like Dusty was in Florida and he was a big wrestling star. Um, but that's kind of the the extent to, to what people know of, about Dusty Rhodes in that era. And, and I think it's actually very interesting to, and, and I'll, and I'll use your approach to kind of just talk about how different the industry was at that time. Um, you know, Wrestling as it exists now, or even as it existed in 1986, was not the the wrestling that existed when, when Dusty became, you know, arguably the biggest star in the world in 1974. You know, that was a very different pro wrestling.
1: You know, I have to tell you this, what you just told me made me think of this, because yes, I'm... Personally, and this isn't just because I like to be a hipster contrarian or anything, but my my favorite Dusty is mid to late seventies, like pimp pimped out Dusty, you know, with the crazy robes and the hats and just the, you know, th- that whole era when he's when he's feuding with superstar Billy Graham and and Gordon Soley is like his, you know, Howard Cosell, like that's the. That's the dusty era that fascinates me the most. And I actually met this guy. This is so random. I wish I still knew him because I could send him your way. But I, I live. I was living in Bridgeport and I went to this restaurant there randomly, went to this restaurant. The guy running it was from the South. He was from Florida. And we were talking about it just came to the subject of wrestling. And this was an older guy. This was probably about 10 years ago. And I think the guy was probably in his 50s then. And he was telling me how he was there in the crowd, the night that Dusty turned face uh, with Pak Song, you know, as his partner, and, and became the American Dream. Like, like he was actually there when that happened.
0: Isn't that amazing? And it, you yeah. know, it's those are the kind of things. Like if you talk to anybody. Who lived in Florida and, and was remotely interested in professional wrestling, even if they weren't interested in professional wrestling, uh, they knew about Dusty Rhodes. Like you go through like the old newspapers and you've done this, I'm sure you go over the territories and you, sometimes you get results and maybe you get it like a little advertisement for the, the card. Um, a lot of times, you know, these will be things where they spill the person's name wrong, like a hundred times, you know, not exactly thorough journalism. When Dusty first became a baby face in Florida, like there are multiple feature stories written about him. There's a feature story, like a big story that cover that's in the real sports section about Dusty Rhodes and just about every single major newspaper in, in the state of Florida. Like the guy was like beyond our comprehension, kind of huge. And so like when you when you go on mostly on Facebook, because that's where the older people are. And you know, they're, they're like fan groups devoted to Dusty Rhodes, and everybody has a story like the one you're you're describing, because like these wrestling events were such primal things at the time. Like these are not these are moments that these people, like the guy at the restaurant you're talking about, they don't forget. you know, You're never gonna forget that you were there the night that Dusty Rhodes turned babyface. And there could be a million different versions of that, like the time he fought, uh, outlaw ron bass or the time sir oliver humperdinck like you know hit him with a cowbell like there's a jillion versions of that story and it, that's just what wrestling meant to people back then it's like maybe it's because there wasn't as much other stuff to do there weren't so many distractions you know but like that kind of you weren't just inundated with entertainment so like when you saw something like that like you didn't forget it so um i, I don't know if that means like the audience for this book is like going to be really old people (laughs) or not but but but, but,
1: I don't think so because Dusty we all know I mean we're still especially thanks to like Dustin and Cody and everything especially Cody now it's like we're still living in the shadow of Dusty Rhodes I mean I would say that Dusty Rhodes right now his name and his legacy is more visible and known to fans now than I would say 10 20 years ago
0: yeah. I mean, I think I probably, my timing is good. Like in my life, yeah. that, that's rarely been the case, but I mean, with, with Cody being such a, a big figure in, in WWE right now, I think definitely like it. there'll be like kind of a, a big push on, on, on Dusty, which is, which I think is great because it's the opposite is kind of part of the reason that, that I wanted to do this project because um, well, while, while WWE has often talked about Dusty in the past. It's kind of like, the version presented is the, the late era polka dot dusty Rhodes, Right. And, and, and for a lot of people who's like, if your only connection with wrestling is WWE network or WWE, like that's probably the, the vision of dusty Roads You're presented is like 1989 and it's uh, him and the, the macho man. And, you know, it's, it's not prime dusty Rhodes And so um, I think that dusty's legacy should be much bigger than just like that guy at the end of his career. Even if it's the four horsemen version, his legacy and what he did in the industry is much bigger than what he did at the end of his career for either Turner or Vince. And so um, I I just wanted to capture some of this stuff while the people who were there, some of them are still around to tell the stories. You know, I just think that's so important. We have these living resources right now. Um, The only people left that, that know this wrestling history that really know it. And so like to, to have the opportunity to, to tell some of their stories, I think we've got to do this work now because there were, there is no, then there is no later. Like, you know, we, we will lose this opportunity if we don't do it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, like for the Sheik book, I almost feel like in a way, I mean, I don't think there's any question in my mind. I feel like the prime time to have written that book is long gone. And I mean, if I was writing it, you know, 30 years ago, there would have been so many more directly involved people that I could have talked to, even if the Sheik himself was unwilling. There still would have been plenty of other. I could have talked to Bobo Brazil, for God's sake. You know what I mean? There would have been a lot more people. And, and yeah, I mean, this really does feel like a, a prime time for a Dusty book. It's kind of funny because we were talking about those uh, ghostwritten autobiographies and Dusty did one of those. He did the book with Howard Brody. So I don't know if you're going to be just throwing that out immediately or kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, using that as any, uh, you know, basis of anything. But there's some type I know I've actually referred to bits and pieces of it, not quoting it directly. But, you know, when when writing about him, just because at least it gives even if you can't believe everything in it, it gives some of his thoughts on things, you know.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it would be a really poor research resource looking for like dates and like when and what actually transpired in some ways, you know, like it's not it's not exactly uh, accurate. But um, I think you're right that in like how did Dusty feel about certain things? I think it probably does a good job there. Um, I was lucky enough to have have done some some long interviews myself with Dusty. when I was working for Gleacher Report and he was oh, with wow. NXT. So I've, I've had the opportunity to, um, I didn't know I was going to do a book, but, you know, I was obviously fascinated with Dusty Rhodes. So I've had a chance to talk to him. But um, the other thing about the book that I think is useful and, and probably his shoot interviews as well, where it's like, um, it tells, it, there's a lot you can learn about what he wanted to tell people about himself and about his career, whether it's true or not, the fact that these were the stories that he wanted out there. um, I I don't know. I think there's maybe something interesting there. And I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to, how I'm going to pull this all together, but you know, every wrestler has like this version of their own truth. I'm sure you've experienced that too, you know?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, uh, I, I found that when I would discover things about the Sheik that I knew, contradicted things that other people told me he had said to them directly you know and I had to be very careful thinking oh my god I think he's working these people uh some of whom are his best <laughs> friends and family members so I have to be very careful because if I'm wrong it looks very bad you know what I mean you have to be very careful Absolutely. you know I know all all power to him and I I respect um any uh, veteran of foreign war but he did exaggerate his military record when he was asked, uh, uh, you know, and I was able to discover that by looking at his military record, you know, things like that. It's it's not that he did nothing, but but he was you know, he was a 19 year old kid who was in Europe for maybe a month before Germany surrendered. So he did see action, but he would talk to people about it like as if he was, you know, at the commander of a tank battalion and all these (laughs) kinds of things. Somebody actually told me that he said that he was the commander of a tank division. And what I discovered was that he drove a tank, you know what I mean? So like those things just kind of get built up on and exaggerated, but you know, with dusty, what interests me is because he's such a unique figure from that time period. I was actually talking with one of my recent guests, Howard Baum about this. He stands out so much because, to me he's like the first really colorful baby face you know it's typically the heels that had to be the ones with the color and the baby faces were just kind of normal and i don't want to say boring but maybe some people found them boring they were just like regular people and dusty just had that baby face charisma to the point where he's really the first guy that with the nwa and and you know the world championship where they really threw out the window all of their preconceived notions of well he has to be a real athlete he has to look a certain way he has to look like you know a pro wrestler he has to be in tremendous shape and all this kind of stuff and he has to have all this shoot wrestling skill and with Dusty they were just like yeah forget about all that you know what I mean
0: Um, everything was out the window like all of their preconceived notions and their ideas about even just like how wrestling was supposed to work because you're right that, like, for the most part, uh, you know, the colorful characters were the heels and baby faces were people mostly that things happen to. Hmm. So they, they weren't. The story isn't built on the baby face doing something generally. It's like there's a baby face and the, here's a, a guy did something to him and um Dusty wasn't like that you know even as a babyface, like Dusty would be constantly getting disqualified or you know suspended and have to come back as uh you know the Midnight Rider Uvalde Slim or something like you know Dusty was a a, a kick butt baby face before Stone Cold Steve Austin was even like a a glimmer of you know of a, he was probably a literal child when Dusty was doing some of this stuff like he was the babyface that um that people were scared of, like the other wrestlers, like he wasn't like a baby face that the heel ran over. Like you knew if you mess with uh, Dusty Rhodes, like uh, it was going to be a problem. Like if you were a heel uh, and and that just feels very different than most pro wrestling of of the era. So I think you're, you're right. That like, maybe part of the reason that Dusty got over the way he did, is just like, he, he presented himself in a different way than, than other pro wrestlers had. And, and I think that's always going to, that's always going to like connect with people because it's like it, you know there's 25 wrestlers on on the card, most of them are just like you know are cogs. You can take one out and put a different one in, but there is no one. There's no other Dusty Roads. You know he's he's it. One of one.
1: Yeah, and I'm it's I'm surprised in a way whenever I look at his career and the era and everything that you know when it comes to being world champion. They even though they put it on him, and I'm not even talking about the last time in '86, because that was basically just a Crockett title at that point. But you know, they put it on him with Harley Race, where he beat Race twice, but they never kept it on him. And I don't know if it was just because that was the thinking at the time that the world champion has to be a heel that baby faces can chase. Um, because if there was any babyface that you would think would have the charisma to travel everywhere and just and sell places out it would have been dusty roads but it just doesn't seem to be like that was the way they thought of the champion like like eddie graham you know dusty roads was his guy but so was jack briscoe and eddie graham was able to get jack briscoe positioned as this long-term world champion. And that never quite happened for Dusty. Like, you know what I mean? He had it obviously the first time, just a couple of days. The second time he had it a few months and it was more like it was a way to get it from Harley race to Ric Flair in a weird way.
0: Yeah. So like those kind of politics, I'm still trying, you know, it's hard to sort out what, what's real and what's not, you know, that's true of like any conversation you ever have in your life with a professional wrestler, you know, you just, (laughs) you just kind of have to accept it. Like, you don't know exactly how much of it is is true and so the and and dusty was already traveling uh, you know he was kind of unique uh, him and andre in that you know he right. would go to all kinds of territories while he was working like he was working the florida territory but he's also doing shots for crockett and he's in georgia and he's going to houston and he's like he's kind of traveling like he's an nwa world champion attraction without the belt um so uh i'm not sure what I, I think he probably could have been the champion like there's a lot working against him like you say because he's not having the sort of matches that they've come to expect uh of the nwa world champion
1: right so, now, yeah go on sorry
0: no no you go ahead so i, I was, I, was gonna said, say oh <laughs> sorry about that
1: i talked too much please no, no, finish you, your you, thought.
0: No, i forgot. now. So you go ahead. <laughs> oh, perfect.
1: Mission accomplished. No, anyway. No, but see, the, the thing with me is because that was the Harley race era of, you know, the championship. And I love Harley race. Obviously, he's a very different kind of wrestler, very different presence and everything. But it's a very different kind of philosophy shift. If you think about it, a decision is made. We don't want, you know, we would rather have a wrestler like a Harley race going around you know, doing what he does as the world champion in all these different territories. We'd rather have that than have a Dusty Rhodes doing it. Like like there was a very uh, uh, clear decision that was made that we want to have this kind of gnarly heel, that go- this bully that goes everywhere instead of having this colorful, charismatic fan favorite that people could get behind. You, you know what I mean? They, they made a choice.
0: Yeah, and, and and part of that is also because you know, the the local promoter, right? They they've got their own baby faces, and those are the people that they're going to have to draw in the towns with every night, you know, of the week. And so it's hard to bring in like Dusty Rhodes is like your the the big baby face NWA world champion because like okay, say people really like him in in Memphis or somewhere. Well, he can't be there you know he's maybe the, he's there once a month or something like you know they that's probably not what they want out of their top baby face and so um the in that in that sense it does make it you know you do understand why they wanted to heal or kind of like a, a tweener character as as the world champion and and we just don't really know i hope i hopefully we'll get some more information on this but it could just be that maybe dusty liked florida like you know he may not have wanted to be traveling around to North Dakota doing shots, you know, <laughs> in front of a thousand people for, cause he was the NWA champion. He'd rather have been in Tampa. Um, you know, the smart people that were around him at the time, like, you know, part of the reason that they did the the title switch is because there, there's only so long you can present dusty Rhodes as a, as the top guy in Florida and him lose all the time or not win the, the big championship, you know, for right. his own credibility, even if it was a short reign, he had to win sometimes. Otherwise, it's like, how how can a fan continue to get behind? And and they and they presented these matches a lot. Like when I talked to Harley Race when his book came out, he was like, I wrestled Dusty Roads so many times, I was dreaming about Dusty Roads at night. <laughs> You know, if you look at like Terry Funk's short title reign, he wrestled Dusty like 30 times, you know, just in, in that short period, he was the the champion. Like Dusty was getting a lot of title opportunities in Florida and they probably wanted that to continue. And not just Florida, but Atlanta. And he would do shots even in like Dothan, Alabama and places like that. Um, So they, they wanted to keep running with Dusty Rhodes. But I think the thought was like, we got to We got to give the fans something like there's only so long. You can keep telling people you're the best if you never prove it. You yeah. Know, that's, a, that's a heel move. Like a heel can do that, but a baby face has to prove it occasionally. So my thought is that's probably, uh, you know, how they ended up giving Dusty those short reins.
1: And, you know, the thing about that is when you've got um, somebody at that level, like you said, eventually, you know, they have to win. They can't keep, they can't keep losing but the with the nwa title i mean wrestling is such a funny thing specifically with that title because it was a touring title you read so much about how so many guys just didn't want it you know what i mean it's like please don't do that to me don't put that on me or or guys that would get it and then say oh my god can i do this like this is destroying me, you know, traveling all over the North America. And in some cases, you know, going to Japan, going to Australia, all these, you know, night after night after night and and people just burning out and breaking down. You know, there's the story of Nick Bockwinkle, where apparently like they very badly wanted him at various points to be the NWA world champion. And he was like, you know what? I'd much rather be the AWA world champion because I'm off in the in the winter I don't have, you know, I stay in the Midwest, I'm making plenty of money, I'm doing great, and no thank you, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about Dusty Rhodes and the life he had in the, the 1970s, and you're living in Tampa, and you're going to Miami every week, and occasionally they'll fly you up to Atlanta, or, or Charlotte, like, um, but you're living a pretty good life, you know, and you're already making a lot of money. Um, if, if I had to bet, I would guess that, uh Dusty Rhodes probably had no interest in a long title, reign.
1: You know, that could be, I, I I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if that was also part of the reason. Cause like I said, a lot with the NWA title, with that touring belt, uh, a lot of people were hesitant to, to win it, but, um, or to have it put on them, I guess I should say. But I want to uh, I want to also broaden the conversation a little bit since we're talking about Dusty. But I remember in leading up to this, you mentioned something to me. I, I often say on here that I, I get very jealous of the people that I have as guests for one reason or another. And the reason I'm jealous of you is that it's because <laughs> you grew up basically watching Georgia Championship Wrestling and, and, and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling in the early eighties, you know, in this prime period. And I remember very understandably you said it, how it just spoiled you for anything after that. It was like, nothing's ever lived up to that again in your mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, so my first wrestling memory, uh, not to bring it back to Dusty Rhodes is like 1980. I think, you know, uh, Ole Anderson turning on uh, Dusty in, in the cage against the assassins and Ivan Koloff is the, the, the guest referee like that's the first thing I, I remember about wrestling and it's just like such a powerful thing uh you know I I can like just still like remember like Dusty's like you know until until your your bones are broken and your back is broken this will never be over like <laughs> you know i still like re- remember that and just like the how real it felt I hate to use that word but how real it felt you know that was just like Uh, I think it made me a wrestling fan for, for life. And then you like going up, you know, to, to like the rock and roll express and, 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 and that era, like, you know, just as like a young, young kid, like a, a a 10 year old kid, like um, it just, it just felt cool. Wrestling was, was really cool. And there was a great time period to, to be a fan.
1: And it, and it also makes a difference. You know, depending on when you encounter it, you know it's that formative period. It's childhood. You're impressionable. You don't totally understand how things work yet, and 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 you know, here comes this thing that that just defies explanation, and it just captures your mind. And I don't know what it was. I mean, I didn't have that experience in that particular way. Partly because I grew up in the Northeast. Um, I didn't have cable. I'm also, how old were you in 1980, if you don't mind
0: me asking? Um, so I was five.
1: Oh, well, we're about the same age. You know, and I think about that sometimes. If only I had had cable, I could have seen a lot of this stuff, even at that age. Like, I remember being aware of pro wrestling, as I've said, even as, as early as 1979, I remember being aware of it and and things like, you know, Chief J Strongbow and Greg the Hammer Valentine. And but I didn't really watch it or knew knew a lot about it and and I wonder how my experience would have been different if I was living in a different part of the country you know and that kind of thing but
0: oh yeah I mean it was just happenstance too like because I I don't think we got in my house we didn't get cable until I I think like 1983 so I just happened to have been over at a friend's house watching and back when like the cable box was up on top of the tv and like was like there's like 13 buttons or whatever and you press like a button on the top to get the cable channels like um so this is like really old school but like I I sometimes think like if I had not seen that particular match in that particular moment like would I even be this weird person today (laughs) (laughs) that's sitting here in my mid-40s like you know still watching you know uh middle Atlantic tv on wwe network or on this huge drive i keep of wrestling matches next to my computer it's like uh i don't know that i would like without that having seen that or maybe i would have caught like the four horsemen attacking ricky morton in the locker room and grinding his face into the cement you know i don't know if you remember that angle but yes like, yeah a little bit later that was another one where it's just like that that's another angle that will stick with me for for the rest of my life, you know, like uh, maybe I'd have seen that and I still would have become a wrestling fan. But like, you know, if you just happened to have walked in on like, you know, private Nelson having a, a match with the Italian stallion or something like maybe I wouldn't be a huge wrestling fan. I don't know. I, but yeah. I had to catch Dusty and Ole Anderson. And wow.
1: Sergeant Slaughter's privates, right? Yes, That's what they yeah. called them.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't like. You have to assume they knew that was funny, but oh, like, they
1: had to. They yeah. had to, especially now that I'm I'm watching a lot of that stuff now on the network, and they'll say stuff where you just know where they'll say like, "Oh, don't mess with Sergeant Slaughter's privates" <laughs> and things like that. They have to know what they're talking about, but you know, I, I'm fascinated with that era and and kind of southern wrestling, especially like southeastern wrestling. From that era I, I even though i didn't experience it as it happened' I, I try to put my finger on what I think it was, and a lot of it feels like there was such a level of intensity and like fire to everything that you didn't see in a lot of places, you know, especially like like w w f was much kind of more methodical and deliberate and very like patiently paced if i'm if I'm being very kind and complimentary, <laughs> yeah, but, but like the Southern fun. stuff was just wild and crazy. And what I think too, is like, cause I watch a lot of Memphis too. The difference there is I feel like nothing against Memphis, but cause they had that fire and intensity too, but it was a little goofier. It wasn't quite as, it was harder to take seriously. And also I find that The workers, I sound like such a snob, they weren't quite as good. The the difference was like in Florida, in Georgia, in mid-Atlantic, you had these hot, hot, hot angles and you had incredible workers at the same time. You know what I mean? I
0: I think you've really nailed it because it's like. I mean, yeah, you could ask, like, oh, why Why was it so, why did it feel the way it did? Well, part of it is just because they happen to have an all-star team of, like, some of the best wrestling talent that's ever existed on the planet, all <laughs> in the same place at the same time. Like, what are the chances that that's going to happen? It's not very often. I can tell you that having now been a fan for 40 years, you know, like, Mm. you know, we were just lucky, you know, we, and all of us now, because, you know, you can go back and watch it in the comfort of your own home. But like, you know, we were lucky to have all those people at the same time. And I think that you're right. Like going back, I'd never lived in Memphis, so I didn't really see it. I wasn't familiar with it, but uh, having gone back and watched it, I, I think it does have some of the kind of wild energy that you get out of mid Atlantic or Georgia, or, or florida but you're right it didn't doesn't have the same quite the caliber of work generally like there there are some you know
1: well, the, the thing for lawler and
0: dandy is- and and those guys are really good but like up and down the card you know you don't have the same level like the thing about what was great about uh, you know the south when i was growing up is like yeah, you had Flair and Dusty and Rock and Rolls so, and you had the Road Warriors and you had Tully Blanchard and you had Ronnie Garvin. And it's like you had gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and there's Arn Anderson and Ole and Wahoo McDaniel is there. And it's just like you're listing like a name of like an all-star team of wrestlers and they're all in the same place. And like even people who had been huge stars like uh, Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant is there on the undercard and there's uh, Paul Jones and like you can just I'm haven't even named the Koloffs you know like it's a million of these acts and they're all there like um what a time you know what a time to have been a fan
1: yeah and and it's one of those things where you don't realize what you have <laughs> until it's gone right. and I think I and I think part of this is just the consequence of getting older like I'll I'll compare this to like you know we we've all done this and I've I've seen you do it online too where you find these wrestling posters and ads for shows, you know, from decades ago. And you, and you look up and down the card and you're just, you just can't believe the level of talent and star power and just ability all in one place. And, and, you know, I, like I said, it's the consequence of getting old because I'll sometimes have that experience in other realms. Like I'll look at, I'll have to look up something and I'll look at, Oh, what are the top 10 movies from such and such a year or whatever. And I'll look at it and go, oh, my God, this is insane. There's nothing like this now. And or I'll do it with music. You know, what, what what's the top 40 of whatever, you know, the summer of uh, 85 or whatever the heck I'm looking up and I'll go, oh my God, we didn't know what we had. Good grief. And and I don't know if some of that, like I said, is just getting old or or what. But but I see it in wrestling all the time. It, it's just I don't know if. If people who, who weren't there or who were too young or whatever can really appreciate what we're talking about here, just the the absolute cream of the crop, all working at the same time, all making a living in the business, you know, hundreds and hundreds of guys, much different from today. Um, right. It was just a different time, such a different time in the business.
0: Yeah. You know, so I think everyone kind of falls into these nostalgia traps where they think that like, you know, for, for all, probably every person that listens to this, like the wrestler that they loved when they were 10 years old is the best wrestler ever. And that was the best time for wrestling. Um, but in, in our case, it's actually true. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like if it was, if you grew up in like your You were 10 years old in like 2005, or like you were even during like the attitude era, like yeah, you had Stone Cold and The Rock or whoever, but like you didn't have the litany that like it it drops off pretty quickly as you start it does the list. And I'm not trying to insult anybody, I'm you know, because there's still lots of great wrestlers in that era, I'm just saying the 80s, that, that mid 80s period was particularly particularly special and i and i don't think i'm saying that just because i was a kid then but probably i am
1: (laughs) well it certainly helps but i mean i but i'm also here saying that i'm talking about coming to these things not as someone who was watching it as a kid not as somebody who experienced it when it first happened you know i'm coming at it more i guess objectively it's it's not something i remember from my childhood and i'm still sitting there going my god this is I'd rather watch this than any WrestleMania in the last, you know, twenty five years. Do do, you know what I
0: mean? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, and and so yeah, I I think like I'm I'm only half kidding when I say like I, you know, everybody thinks their wrestling is the best wrestling, but uh, our wrestling was. Well, because
1: uh, I, I think that it it's also just the 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 level of competence and technique in a way because because you had so many, you had so many thriving companies, so many places to make a living as a wrestler and get experience that everybody was so good. Like I'll have this experience watching a card from top to bottom. You'll even see the opening matches where you don't have huge major stars. They're not the most colorful, but even if you don't know who they are, let's say you can sit there and they're so just good at what they do that, that, I can still I still enjoy it very much just watching them work a match because everybody's so good.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'm I didn't even mention Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express when I was doing my whole list of talent. Like there's just so many, but you're absolutely right. Like, yeah, like uh Flair and Dusty were killing it, and Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard were killing it, but also like you, you know, you're talking about you're not skipping the opening matches, like Brad Armstrong might be in that opening match. Tim Horner is there or something, you know, like uh, up and down. You know, unskippable. These shows are unskippable. That's how I look at them.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. And I also think it's interesting too, uh, in your case, how, you know, you're you're. We mentioned that you wrote the book Shooters about the 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 legit tough guys of wrestling, the guys that could really truly hurt you, you know, that could grapple you and and shoot you and shoot on you and hook you and all that stuff. And, you know, you've covered MMA extensively and typically, I hate to generalize, but people who go in for that aspect of the business, they usually have very little patience or interest in the more worked aspects of wrestling. You know what I mean? Like the more colorful side of things, the more show business side of things. And I find just from following you that that you have you have an appreciation for both so for for all aspects of what makes pro wrestling fascinating not just the tough guy side of things and not just the ridiculous side of things Do you know what I mean
0: yeah so I I, I think I just love wrestling you know I, I you know there's really nothing about it that, that I don't enjoy wrestling is something that's interesting because it's like one of the few things that I'll experience where it's like I love great wrestling but bad wrestling is also fantastic you know <laughs> like you know it doesn't yes you, know, you can. the only thing that's not really good is like mid, middling wrestling I kind of hate that but like if it's bad or it's great like there's nothing better than professional wrestling so it's like yeah I'm I, I'm interested in the old time shooters and like you know how that business worked and and all the double crosses and the great stories from the 1920s and up to today you know like even if you're like reading like the the Meltzer Dave Meltzer Wrestling Observer in the 1980s like it's kind of like the underlying question for most wrestling fans at some point which is like okay but who could really win in a fight you right. know, that's you're that's always gonna be asked, so there is an, an interest in that, although probably today's fans probably almost never asked that. Like, can you imagine where it's like no could could FTR beat up the Young Bucks? Like nobody knows or cares. No,
1: but but you know what, I mean, you you should know what killed those arguments. It it was the rise of MMA because now <laughs> right. I mean that was it. The, like I've said it often, the, the whole portion of the fan base where that was their number one concern was who could really beat up who and who's the toughest. And I want to see like really good grappling. Like those people left wrestling largely, you know, they were like, well, why am I watching this when I could be watching these guys who are really doing it? You you know what I mean? And I feel like in a way wrestling got more divorced from that, from, from, you know, the shooting aspect of things. Partly because of that, and I also feel like with Dusty going getting back to him, but that whole era that he was in, and then you've got Hulk Hogan right after him, that was like the the true death in my mind of shooting the an ability being of any consequence whatsoever in pro wrestling like I feel like through the seventies even I mean obviously like you know in the early twentieth century pretty much everybody was a shooter and, and most of them could kill you, in, you know, in a heartbeat. But but even into the 60s and 70s where you've got a lot of goofiness and you've got very colorful characters and TV wrestling, there's still an importance and a premium, I feel, that was placed on, well, these are the guys that could really do it. Like, you don't want to mess with Carl Gotch. You don't want to mess with Billy Robinson. Like, these people can really kill you, like Vern Gagne and things like that. And I feel like, once it got into that end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, it really truly went out the window.
0: Yeah, I think there's something to that. It's like, even like Ric Flair, like, there's not really like a big no, there's no consideration of what can Ric Flair beat up Nikita Koloff in a real fight. Like, yeah, you just at some point there, people aren't thinking about it. Um, I think with Dusty, it's kind of interesting though, because, you know, a lot of the guys are telling me that like um, Dusty had a lot of fights. Um, part, not with the boys, but like when they would go out to, to bars and part of it, I think is probably because he looked the way he did is like, he seemed like maybe he's a safe one to, to challenge. So like, you know, low key dusty is kind of like a tough guy. I think, you know, like, you know, that a lot of people have stories of like somebody messing with dusty and he would get him out of there real quick. Like uh, it's interesting when you think you don't think about dusty Rhodes as an athlete until you really start watching, especially the older stuff. And it's like, there are not a lot of human beings that weigh 300 pounds that move as fast as Dusty Rhodes right. did in, in like when he was 30 years old, you know, a little different in 1987, right? But like in 1976, like a guy would challenge Dusty in the parking lot of a bar, uh, a guy would get flattened, you know? So it's right. a, it, It's weird. And I think probably um, also, I'm just thinking out loud here, but like, I think, some of the reason possibly that Dusty booked himself and other people booked him as hard and as tough as they did. Like, you know, if you watched Florida, you know, it took like five guys to beat Dusty Rhodes. Like you weren't beating Dusty Rhodes. And maybe part of the reason they booked him so strong is because uh, his appearance, like, you know, for him to be believable, maybe they felt like he really did. He had to look really strong all the time. And uh, I wonder if that wasn't part of his mindset all the way through uh, through his career.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And and I also think that also, you know, over time, the standards kind of change too. like I've had this conversation with people where if you go back to, say, the 50s, right, where you've got, you know, Luthez is your world champion and, you know, Luthez is a serious wrestler, although I think if you actually watch a lot of his matches, I mean, you know, he he he's much more of an entertainer than I think even he himself would have ever admitted. Like his matches oh, uh, are. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's crazy to watch his actual matches. So, like, uh, I actually had like a I was like a pen pal of Luthes when I was like a young, uh, an older teenager, maybe my early twenties. That's great because like, he was online. Like he he was. Yes, early... I remember those days. And, yes, and on wrestling classes. Online. And he would just like, he would just give you his phone number. (laughs) He's like, Lou says, I'm like 19 or something. (laughs) It's like gives you your phone number. Um, So I remember talking to him and like I asked him one time I think a question that offended him but like I've always kind of wondered. Uh, and people don't expect this of me, I guess, because I ended up writing the, the book Shooters. But it's like, you know, Lou would talk a lot about like, oh, you know, Buddy Rogers, he couldn't wrestle at all. Or they he'd even talk about like Jim Lundis. If you watch like the old tapes of Jim Lundis, does nothing but like Matt Holds and stuff like he's an he's a wrestler. But he's right. like, oh, you know, String of Lewis said he wasn't much of a shooter or whatever. And I was just like, at one point I asked him, I was like, OK, but why does it matter? like i and i didn't mean it to be like sarcastic but it's a legitimate question and i think it still stands like uh and and i did write a book about shooters and i think they're cool but also it's like okay but who cares like well because i'm not shooting with buddy rogers you're having an entertainment like you point out about fez like he's he wasn't like some kind of boring bland wrestler no not
1: at all not at he's all. Doing
0: drop kicks like he's an athlete, like he's doing fun matches. You can watch a bunch of them from the Chicago library archives they put up. If you go to, to, to YouTube, like you can watch like a, a classic Luthes matches. There's a bunch of them on there, like him and Vern Gagne going, you know, 50 minutes. And like Luthez was awesome. He's not at all like the way he described himself. <laughs> no. And I, I tell
1: people that, too. I, I, I tell them watch Luthes matches. I'm telling you, because, you know, you have this idea in your head that it's going to be like, you, you know, watching Frank Gotch or something where you've got people laying on the mat for three hours or whatever, but, but no, I mean, this is the 1950s and and he had to be entertaining. He, you know, and his matches are great. I mean, even he and buddy Rogers, they have, there's a, there's a great um, one hour draw that they did. You're talking about those Chicago matches. That's phenomenal. Like, like it's like a master's class. And when I watch stuff like that, I sometimes feel, you know, history is always painted a certain way, like when it came to Buddy Rogers, because I read Tim Hornbaker's book on Buddy Rogers, which is great. And he's a fascinating figure. But I feel like a lot of the the general perception today by people who care about Buddy Rogers is in a negative light, largely because of Thez and the things he said and the way he looked down on him. But Rogers is Amazing, you know. I mean, like he's in there, you know, doing spots and blocking out matches in a very modern kind of way and holding his own, at least as a performer with Fez. And I have to say, like I'm talking about shifting standards, I think even if in the 1950s Rogers was considered a non, you know, serious wrestler, I guarantee you he could out wrestle in a real shooting sense, probably 99% of anybody in pro wrestling today.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, isn't there like a story of him, like stopping a robbery or something in his seventies where he he had to beat up a guy. It's like, um, like anybody that, that did wrestling before like 1978 uh, worked a lot of holds and knew some wrestling, you know, that was just like how the business works. So it's like, you got to take, um, with Fez and all these guys you have to to take it with a grain of salt but I think partly because Lou was so public and because he did his book and he talked to people online so like kind of like his vision and what he thought about the business is like what the 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 hardcore and smart fans kind of uh, grasped onto so like you know the people he didn't like became the villains and you Ryan. see like versions of this play out like today where it's like uh if you like Bret Hart then you don't like Shawn Michaels and it's like okay but like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels are both awesome you know uh, yeah. same with uh, Lou and, and Buddy Rogers and then it's like um you know you can lose someone from lose the fact that Buddy Rogers was like the big the bigger star of the era like you know with due respect to Lou like
1: no that's he, true yeah,
0: he's the bigger wrestling star, Jim Lundis, who like they're saying, you know, Lou's saying my guys told me he wasn't a good shooter. Like he's the biggest wrestling star of all time. Like, yep. uh, so you got to like be careful with, with with that that stuff and 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 how much weight you give it. To me, I give it zero weight. Like I I don't care that Ken Shamrock could have beaten up The Rock. Um, It's irrelevant, and I I suspect it was fairly irrelevant in 1952. You know.
1: Yeah, and I also think you know, I mean, the, the Londo's thing is is really important to remember because a lot of it is politics. You know, a lot of the negative word about Londo's came because he had enemies. You know, and the the Strangler Lewis camp, and they didn't like him. And like, if you read, I think it's the book uh, Fall Guys. I think is the one where he's just slandered through through the book. Yeah, I mean, basically. That's
0: what I'm of, and it's just like it's just brutal, and it's just you lose sight of the fact that hey this is the biggest wrestling star ever right you can make the case for some more modern guys maybe but like at the time that was written this is the big guy and and you'll notice this that like the the big star in wrestling no matter what the period is we're talking about it now like with the with jim and with the buddy rogers and dusty and and hogan like you there are jealous people you know and 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 that and in wrestling, especially, because there's there is only like so many slots for that kind of big um national star, and well, so I, yeah a, a lot of guys don't wanted it and didn't get it, and so you know when you're sitting on top, it's kind of a lonely place,
1: yeah, and I even think thez when it came to somebody like Raka, I think there was um I mean he would probably punch me in the face if he was here and heard me say it, but I think there was jealousy. Oh, for be- sure. Because bigger he was he was a bigger sense, star. Yeah. He was very exciting. Um, And Thez didn't see him as a serious wrestler. And I mean, at the time, he was working a style that nobody else was working, at least not in the United States, just where it's 100% high-flying stuff. I mean, he was the first guy to be doing that. So, of course, Thez would look down on it, but I feel like you know the the thing that people forget and i think it's because so much time has passed and it's really almost out of living memory that you know at the time you're talking about the 1950s this was not like some sedate prosaic-like era of pro wrestling. This was the beginning of TV wrestling. It was wild and crazy. And you had, you know, gorgeous George and Killer Kowalski and Ricky Starr, you know, doing ballet moves in the ring. And you had Nazi wrestlers and things. It wasn't like it was the most super serious era. And I think that Thez liked to think of himself, and maybe it's because he was hanging around with Strangler Lewis, but... He liked to think of himself as the last throwback to that earlier era of the shooters, like pre-World War II, like, you know, the very straightforward kind of on the mat grapplers when I don't really know if he really was that, but he liked to think of himself as that.
0: Yeah. I mean, so you can say you are whatever you want to, but I mean, in in a way it's almost like, so these, the, you're talking about the era of big gimmicks. Um, Okay. That's his, his gimmick (laughs) you know (laughs) i am the shooter that's my gimmick is he or was he a real shooter like that's what you discover when you when i'm working on this book is like i who can really say like other wrestlers say he was a a shooter but he's not like Gagne or jack briscoe or or even carl gotch where you can say okay well he has credentials in real competitive sports he doesn't like he was a pro wrestler from the time he was a teenager like, mm. I'm sure he was a tough guy, but he doesn't have some, like, he doesn't have, like, a bunch of competition wins. Like, he's a pro wrestler his whole life. And so, like, I think part of that that kind of talk is just, like, um, and, and part of the reason that, like, there was all these things, like, Bill Watts says, if you lose a fight in a bar, you're fired. It's because I think some of these guys were a little bit embarrassed that they were pro wrestlers. Like that's the genesis of all of that kind of behavior. That's the root of it is yeah. that Luthes, Luthes was embarrassed that he was a pro wrestler and um, he wanted it to be thought of as different than the other pro wrestlers. Um, but he's not, he wasn't, he's just one of the boys, a really good one, but like, um, and, and that's something that's lost from the business probably for the better. I think, you know, like no one is embarrassed now uh, because they're a fake wrestler, like, you know, People accept what it is. And um, I think that's probably healthier for a lot of a lot of the performers.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And, and I think again, the the existence of MMA has made a difference there because I think back in thez's day, I think that if MMA had existed at that time, I think there were a lot of guys that might have gone into that instead. If if they were more inclined to go, you know, I want to be a real wrestler like I really want to like show what I could do they might have gone into you know mixed martial arts if it had been an option whereas now that it is an option obviously the guys who are in pro wrestling and 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 girls are the ones who truly truly want to do it and embrace it for what it is you know
0: yeah and I think that you know I had never really conceptualized it the way you're talking about right now but I think you like uh, a lot of the changes that like old-time fans like probably a lot of the people that listen to your podcasts are like the things that make them uncomfortable while about wrestling today are, are probably the product of like the kind of people who aren't in it anymore because mm-hmm. they're in MMA or, 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 some other like real contact sport. So I think that's, that's interesting. Like, you know, the, your, your tough guy, uh, Bill Watts style wrestlers are not doing wrestling anymore. And so you, you do feel that difference, I think within, within the industry and, and, maybe it does all point back to 1993 and the, the unfortunate birth of the ultimate fighting championship.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it really is. I could, I could, uh, I could do a whole MMA episode. Actually, I could talk about shooters forever. That's such an interesting topic and there's not a lot of people I find who are, who are, able or willing or interested to talk about it from the pro wrestling side of things
0: i can but tell you from book sales it. that there's a i can tell you from book sales there's not a lot of people in
1: <laughs> well here i i have a good i have a good story with regards to the whole like shooter versus versus worker thing and then I'm, i'll let you go because i know it, it's getting late here and i don't want to take up too much of your time you've been very kind but i don't know this this may have been in your book. And if it is, forgive me if I'm telling it to you, but there was a story. And I think Thez himself told this story where at the height of his, you know, he's the world champion. It's the 1950s at the height of his powers, he's hanging out with Strangler Lewis and Strangler Lewis, who's an old man by this point says, I want to take you to meet my old friend, Joe Stecker. So of course, Joe Stecker was, You know, one of the top wrestling stars of kind of the teens and 20s, a very legit kind of one of these farm boy wrestlers, you know, like a a, a real shooter, but he had some struggles with depression and mental illness, and he had been in, uh, in those days, you know, being what it was, he had been in a mental institution for decades, just living in this mental institution. And at this point he was like in his fifties, maybe pushing 60. And Lewis says, I want to take you to meet him. You know, he was this great champion and he brings him there and, and um, they decide, Hey, you know what? (laughs) Stecker is like, let's see what you could do. And they move all the furniture around the room and, and and here's this this old you know guy Joe Stecker this o- over the hill basically mental patient, and he wipes the floor with Luthez the heavyweight champion of the world just easily just handily just ties him in knots, and it was it was the kind of thing where at the time they wouldn't want anybody to know that it happened, but years later I guess Thez was comfortable kind of laughing about it, but it but again it goes to show you that they really were a different breed and and you know in those days i mean those guys were killers you know
0: yeah i mean the scissors king like when you when your job is going around the the country like and people might challenge you to an actual wrestling match when you're right. at the wrestling matches like you're a different you're a different breed of guy it's like those early mma fighters like ken ken shamrock like when you know, no one has ever seen MMA before. And you're the guy who's like, yeah, I'll get in the cage and fight anybody in the world. I don't care. I don't know what their martial art is. I don't know anything about it, but let's do the fight. Like that's a different kind of guy. That's like the kind of guy that like Stranger Lewis or Joe Stecker was, you know, it's a, it was a different business. So it is, it is interesting that like Fez is kind of like the character of that. Joe Stecker was the real thing, uh, right? the, the real, uh, wrestler and uh, yeah there's differences like I, I i'm like you i'm really interested in this but like also on the other side of it so like i'm probably someone else will steal this idea now but like i've done like the research and one day i'm planning on doing like a companion a companion to shooters and it's called workers mm-hmm. and it's going to be about the early football players like wayne munn and uh, gus sonnenberg and joe sebaldi and the the guys and even like rock, up to like the rocket era where it's like These are the guys that made wrestling what it is now. Like the shooters is the past, right? Like the the workers is like, that's what we do. Like, that's what this is. Yeah, It's like an an equally, if not more important companion. Um, Like shooters is like a lost history of a business that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, We're still in the period of the workers. So um, I don't know. That's just something I've had in the back of my mind ever since. um,
1: That's a great idea because I mean, You mentioned Sonnenberg. I mean, and and that is a name you do not hear anymore, but like somebody like him and Londos, I mean, those two guys are hugely responsible for what we call working now. I mean, I mean, Sonnenberg was the guy that introduced like, you know, we're going to run at each other. We're not just going to lay on the mat. We're going to move around the ring. We're going to, you know, I'm going to tackle you. We're going to, there's going to be like some motion that starts with him, you know,
0: that's, it's that's the, an important story. The 1920s. And he's basically Goldberg. Like, you know, <laughs> Yes, he, he's a guy, he's like a football player that does the spear and beats everybody in a, a couple of minutes. Like uh, the, he's, he was Goldberg. And um, so like, you know, the, you know, everything you think of as, as new in wrestling, like somebody did it, you know, probably in like 1930, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> right. Wrestling, right. Wrestling well, really I mean, is, there's only I mean, so many ideas, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: Luthez was power bombing people. I mean, I don't think people realize that, you know, uh, um, in the 50s, Luthez is power bombing people in matches. So, uh, you know, these things go back earlier than you think. Very. But uh, but I can God, I mean, we have to do it. We'll, we'll have to do another one where we just talk about shooter versus worker stuff, because this is totally fascinating to me. But but I know we've been doing this uh, a long time. And so, no, <laughs> so uh, no, no, no. Please, are you kidding me? It's mostly my fault. I I could talk about this stuff all night, but but I can't thank you enough for for making some time to to have this conversation. This has been phenomenal, really. Just thank you.
0: Yeah, of course, and thanks for having me, and and thanks for for writing your book. You know, it's a it was a lot of fun to read, and and I admire the work you did quite a bit. And
1: and you know, before I let you go, would you want to do you want to mention your podcast or or anything about? Um, your books or anything you'd like to direct people to?
0: Well, I think probably like the most, the thing I'd like people to, to experience the most is my, my Ken Shamrock biography. And really the best place to find that is on, on Amazon.
1: Okay. All right. Well, then there you have it. Well, John, thanks again. And we will be absolutely doing this again. Once I start repeating guests, you'll be getting a call from me.
0: All right, I'll be here.
1: There you have it, folks. My conversation with Jonathan Snowden. I hope you enjoyed that look behind the curtain at how wrestling biographies are written and uh, the kind of things that motivate people to write those books and really the kind of things that we're trying to accomplish by writing them. I found that to be a fascinating discussion to have with John. I hope you enjoyed listening in. I hope you're going to continue to enjoy listening in on the conversations here at Shut Up and Wrestle. We've got great guests on the way, as I always do. So I'd like to tell you who next week's guest is going to be, because it's somebody I think who would be very, very familiar to anyone who has read about wrestling on the internet in the last 25-plus uh, years. Um, he is the man behind Slam Wrestling. He is the author and co-author of many a professional wrestling book, including the upcoming um, autobiography that he has worked on with Medusa Michelli. I'm talking about Greg Oliver. That's right. Greg Oliver is going to be my next guest on Shut Up and Wrestle next week. Also on the way, as I've mentioned before, we have another pro wrestling illustrated luminary Craig Peters on the way to shut up and wrestle. So keep on listening. And you know what? You can find this uh, podcast wherever you find the podcasts that you love and listen to, meaning um, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, all the usual places, and, of course, our website, suawpod.com. And as I've mentioned in the past, join the Facebook group. If you are a regular listener to Shut Up and Wrestle, you're going to want to join that Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, for ongoing discussion on the show, on our guests, on future guests, um, added material, all that fun stuff. stuff. If you uh, are interested in a copy of... Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, signed by me. Please feel free to reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, or uh, you can find me on Twitter at brianrsolomon or Instagram at brianrsolomon. Find me however you like, and we can talk about it. Um, The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get copies of at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can find at Inside the Ropes Magazine.com. I've mentioned my social media platforms. You'll also find me on Facebook. Brian Solomon Writer is my author page. And on any of my social media platforms, you will find links to my author web page, which has been recently updated. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And if I may quote the great Francis Albert Sinatra, we feel sorry for people that don't drink because when you wake up in the morning, that's as good as you're going to feel all day. So long, wrestling fans.